Will you denounce anti-Semitism once and for all, just to clear up the confusion? Why is there any confusion about that? Really? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Yeah, really. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Nope, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Maui on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In in, uh, Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell-ish fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, um, well, this uh, this appears to be it. This appears to be um, what Trump has been warning us about, what Trump has been threatening us about, and what uh, a great deal of uh, people in this country apparently voted for when they voted in favor of Donald Trump to become the president of the United States. Today, the Trump administration has issued guidance memos on immigration enforcement, Regarding the undocumented in this country on uh, children who came here years ago and have known no other country, no other home but this one. Rules for law enforcement that may open up the door to mass deportation. We'll be joined by Wendy Feliz from the American Immigration Council shortly to unpack what all of this means and uh, find out if it is as disturbing as it sounds. But hey, uh, Desi Doyen, she'll join us with the uh, Green News Report a little bit later. Those are always fun. Oh, these days, don't you know. So that's coming up uh, as well. You know, you're supposed to be our... I'm uh, supposed to be bringing the good news, but I, 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 like I said, we're, we're always looking for the good news wherever we can find it. Yeah, we'll see if we find any today. Uh, well, let's start here uh, with this, because really this is the only good news that I've been able to find here today. Uh, Donald Trump seems to have uh, selected a national security advisor to take the place of uh, 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 what fired. I know it was he fired. Was he resigned? Uh, Michael Flynn, uh, who, who had been his national security advisor. So the new pick for the national security advisor seems as if he is not insane as far as I can tell. So uh, that's such seems, a low bar. I, yeah. Right. But that that seems that's about all I can come up with. That seems like a good thing uh, that he is not insane. And actually, it's a very important role, National Security Advisor. And having Michael Flynn there, who I think is absolutely insane, 
Um, having him gone, I think, is a good thing. And having someone who is not insane <clears throat> in his place is also a good thing. H.R. McMaster, an active duty Army general, <clears throat> he will be President Donald Trump's next National Security Advisor after Flynn stepped down after just 24 days. McMaster is well known among observers of the uh, U.S. military. He has a sterling reputation as a strategist, as a leader and intellectual, according to Zach Bouchamp over at Vox. Uh, Fred Kaplan at Slate uh, reports that uh, McMaster is widely viewed as the Army's smartest officer. That's a good thing, too. Uh, his uh, predecessor, uh, Michael Flynn, had a uh, seemingly justified reputation for being a loose cannon uh, who attracted uh, fringe political ideas. But McMaster, Bouchamp reports, is the opposite. He is a careful scholar and a successful general who's well regarded in Washington foreign policy establishment circles. So even some Trump critics like former Obama Defense Department official Andrew Exum, uh, have praised the selection of McMaster. Exum said he is one of the most talented men I know, a great officer and thinker. Huge upgrade. Okay, that's then. good. Yeah, uh, it's a shame we had to go through all of well, this to yeah. get to the guy who might actually be qualified. And there and are good. still questions about uh, how much McMaster will actually be able to do in this role, and will he, uh, you know, be able to face down potential opponents in the inner in you know Donald Trump's inner circle. But just a little bit more background here on on McMaster. He enrolled in a history uh, a PhD program back after serving in the first Gulf War in 1997. He published his dissertation in a book arguing that the incompetence of and internal divisions among the country's leading military officers during the Vietnam War allowed President uh, Lyndon Johnson at the time and his civilian advisors to get trapped in an unwinnable war. That seems like it may be um, a useful observation, a useful understanding. Uh, in 2005, then Colonel McMaster was deployed to Iraq and... Um, was tasked with pacifying the uh, the city, the insurgent-ridden city of Talafar. Uh, but unlike many of George W. Bush's generals at the time, McMaster had emphasized Arabic language skills and interfacing with the Iraqi civilians at the time uh, on the theory that insurgents cannot survive in a uh, friendly population. Uh, population that was friendly at the time to the uh, to the U.S. forces there. Foreign policy's Tom Ricks uh, described McMaster's time in Iraq like this. He, he writes, uh, I remember him telling his soldiers that understanding counterinsurgency really wasn't hard. Every time you disrespect an Iraqi, you're working for the enemy, he said. That sounds good. That sounds encouraging. I'm glad to hear that uh, that man will be the national security advisor. Ricks went on to say that um, under uh, McMaster's policy there, they even had uh, customer satisfaction forms. Literally, detainees were asked to fill out upon release with questions like, were you treated well? How was the food? What could we do better? That sounds outrageously reasonable. So I am, uh, let's say, delighted uh, that H.R. Uh, McMaster is um, is now being appointed as the National Security Advisor. He will not have to go through any sort of confirmation pro uh, process. 
as uh, the, the NSA uh, does not have to do that. That's just a selection of the president's. Uh, and by the way, uh, Ricks had reported that uh, that approach in Iraq worked very well, and uh, he was able to establish control over the city with cooperation from local authorities uh, by the uh, by the end of the year after he had uh, been assigned there. So um, that's good. Uh, Zach Bouchamp says uh, it's hard to think of a, a man who's uh, more qualified, at least on paper. But he will have to get past these uh, this question about staffing. Uh, and that was uh, one of the folks who turned down the job from uh, that was offered to him by uh, Donald Trump. Uh, General Harwood uh, Harward said he wouldn't do it because uh, he did not want to keep uh, Michael Flynn's top deputy on KT McFarland, a Fox News uh, advisor. He didn't want to keep her on. So the question is, did McMaster agree to keep McFarlane on. We're supposed to be looking to see if she resigns in the next few days. That will be an indication of whether he uh, uh, agreed to work with her. Uh, Fred Kaplan over at Slate notes the, the key thing to know about McMaster is that he has made a career of speaking truth to power, often instinctively without the slightest talent for fawning to his superiors. But uh, as a military man speaking to the president of the United States, there's a question of whether he was able to tell that president that, no, I, uh, I, I need to have this deputy or that deputy. I need to staff this up with my own people. So that lies ahead. And there endeth today's good news. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, because uh, in what has now become an almost weekly occurrence, a fourth wave of bomb threats appears to have been made against Jewish community centers across the country this week, forcing evacuations once again. According to various reports, um, Jewish community centers in Birmingham, Alabama, Houston, Texas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, Buffalo, New York, Chicago, Illinois, Albur uh, Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico, Tampa, Florida, Nashville, Tennessee, all received threats on Monday. Jack Jenkins of Think Progress reports this is at least the fourth wave of bomb threats targeting American uh, Jewish community centers since January. Prior to Monday, roughly 48 Jewish centers in uh, in 26 different states had reported receiving unsettling phone calls this year from a caller using a voice disguiser. In what is being described as telephone terrorism, none of the incidents, uh, fortunately, uh, have uncovered actual bombs or resulted in physical harm. But these uh, these fear based attacks are rattling many in the uh, in the Jewish community, understandably so. There has been a sharp uptick in anti-Semitic uh, incidents across the country that began during Donald Trump's campaign. For president, they appear to have escalated since his election. Think progress tracked 70 instances of anti-Jewish hatred since Trump's election. And while evidence indicates that uh, that the hate incidents are skyrocketing generally, the largest number of incidents, according to uh, Think Progress, have been anti-Semitic. In a separate count of hate crimes, the Southern Poverty Law Center reports um, nearly 2,000 incidents in the 34 days after the November election, um, both uh, anti-Semitic and other bias-related harassment. On Monday, Matt Ferner at HuffPost uh, reported that the far right has become emboldened under Donald Trump, and while the number of Americans who directly supported 
Support hardened hate groups remains far lower than it had been in earlier decades. The number of hate groups in America is rising. According to Southern Poverty Law Center, Heidi Byrick, uh, director of uh, the Intelligence Project at the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, said that this series of bomb threats since the new year is unprecedented. She says she's been at SPLC since 1999 and has never seen a string of attacks like this that are targeting the same kind of institutions in the same kind of way. This is new, Byrick said. Now, this comes as uh, Donald Trump has been asked three times last week by multiple reporters to comment on the rise of anti-Semitism in press conferences, but he declined each time. He ignored a question about it last week during a press conference with Israeli Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He discussed the margin of victory uh, in his election instead. And when he was asked explicitly by one Jewish reporter the following day to comment on the rash of Jewish community center bomb threats, Trump interrupted him, said his question was very insulting, told him to sit down without even finishing his question. Meanwhile... Uh, vandals in the St. Louis area have caused extensive damage to a Jewish cemetery in University City. Some 200, 200 headstones at the Chesed uh, Shell Emmeth Cemetery. In University City, Missouri. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, I said the St. Louis area. That's right. And okay. because I'm from there, I thought everybody. But you're right. <laughs> uh, in University City, Missouri, uh, 200 headstones at uh, Chesed Shell Emmeth Cemetery discovered to have been toppled, among other damage and desecration. According to police, uh, cemetery employees discovered the damage on Monday morning. The cemetery was established by a group of Jewish immigrants from Russia in 1893. It has been around a very long time. Uh, numerous plots were damaged. Uh, headstones were pushed over. Uh, the uh, the police declined to comment on the possibility of the vandalism being a hate crime. Right now, everything is under investigation, they said. We're looking into all possible leads. We don't know. This could just be some crazy kids having fun in the cemetery. Police are reviewing the uh, security camera footage uh, as they can find it from the cemetery and surrounding uh, businesses. Missouri Governor Eric Greitens denounced the vandalism as a despicable act. He said anyone who should uh, seek to divide us through an act of desecration will find instead that they unite us in a shared determination from their pitiful act of ugliness. We can emerge even more powerful in our faith. According to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, uh, Congresswoman, uh, or state rep, I should say, Stacy Newman, uh, who has family members buried in the cemetery, uh, stood along with, uh, uh, st with uh, state rep Joe Adams, a University City Democrat, uh, whose district includes that cemetery, to say, this desecration has devastated the whole St. Louis community. The grief and sadness of this, is, of this act is overwhelming, completely overwhelming. Now, uh, on a personal note, uh, as I mentioned there, I'm from St. Louis. My grandparents are buried uh, at the Chesed Shell Emmeth Cemetery. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, somewhat disturbing, somewhat overwhelming. Just by way of full disclosure, yes, I have a dog in this particular hunt. It was particularly disturbing when we got off air yesterday and uh, saw the news of this. I don't know if my uh, relatives' graves have been disturbed. But yes, uh, very disturbing. 
on a number of levels. Uh, in a statement to NBC Peter Alexander on uh, NBC's Peter Alexander on Monday, the White House press secretary had uh, speaking of the uh, threats against the Jewish Community Center, uh, said those threats were unacceptable, but w- had made no reference to anti-Semitism. For some reason, the White House has been having a very difficult time talking about anti-Semitism. They did not uh, mention the Jewish people specifically on Holocaust Remembrance Day a week or two ago. Finally today, finally today, uh, Donald Trump specifically uh, denounced anti-Semitism. He denounced the recent rise in bomb threats against the Jewish community centers around the country. He said that anti-Semitism and racism Uh, that continue to trouble America must be addressed. NBC's Craig Melvin questioned Trump and was finally able to get an answer from him on the matter directly. Will you denounce anti-Semitism once and for all, just to clear up the confusion? Well, I do all the time. I do all the time. And I think it's terrible. I think it's horrible, whether it's anti-Semitism or racism or any anything you want to think about having to do with the divide. Uh, Anti-Semitism is Likewise, it's just terrible. And you don't know where it's coming from, but I certainly hope they catch the people. I think you maybe uh, have had it for longer than people think, and maybe it gets brought up a little bit more. But I will tell you that uh, anti-Semitism is horrible, and it's going to stop, and it has to stop. So you're denouncing now once and for all? Oh, of course. And I do it wherever I get a chance, I do it. Well, it took him long enough. Uh, today, uh, Hillary Clinton, before uh, uh, Trump uh, made his statement, uh, remember Hillary Clinton? Remember that woman? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she tweeted out, um, Jewish community center threats, cemetery desecration, and online attacks are so troubling and they need to be stopped. Everyone must speak out, starting with the president of the United States. Well, he finally did, at least to an extent. This was uh, today Uh, during his tour of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Trump was shown an exhibit on slavery during the American Revolution. He was joined by uh, two black members of his team, of course, Housing and Urban Development Secretary nominee Ben Carson and, uh, incredibly enough, administration official Omarosa Manigault which is just incredibly enough for anyone who has ever watched The Apprentice and knows who this uh, woman Omarosa is. Um, The uh, museum includes an exhibit about Ben Carson and his beginnings in Detroit, his rise as a neurosurgeon, and then as eventually as a Republican presidential candidate. Trump later told reporters that he plans to visit the Holocaust Museum, and uh, he said, quote, that's very important to me. Speaking after the uh, tour of the museum, Trump pledged to fight bigotry, intolerance and hatred. And he thanked states where he won by, quote, double, double, double digits. Yes, he's still talking about his election Uh, during his impromptu speech. He then went on to address the anti-Semitic threats once again made against the Jewish community centers. This tour was a meaningful reminder of why we have to fight bigotry intolerance and hatred in all of its very ugly forms. The anti-Semitic threats targeting our Jewish community and community centers are horrible and are painful and a very sad reminder of the work that still must be done to root out hate and prejudice and evil. 
The uh, Anne Frank Center for Mutual Respect called those statements um, denouncing anti-Semitism today from Donald Trump, quote, a pathetic asterisk of condescension. He said the president's sudden acknowledgement is a Band-Aid on the cancer of anti-Semitism that has infected his own administration. According to a statement they posted on uh, on Facebook, um, the uh, Anne Frank Center said his statement today is a pathetic asterisk of condescension after weeks in which he and his staff have committed grotesque acts and omissions reflecting anti-Semitism, yet day after day have refused to apologize and correct the record. The Anne Frank Center is uh, the New York-based partner of the Amsterdam-based Anne Frank House, uh, where Anne Frank uh, was hit out and was eventually found and taken away and killed in a concentration camp. Uh, The Anne Frank Center describes itself as a civil and human rights organization. They said in their statement, make no mistake, the anti-Semitism coming out of this administration is the worst we have seen from any administration. The White House repeatedly refused to mention Jews in its Holocaust remembrance and had the audacity to take offense when the world pointed out the ramifications of Holocaust denial. And it was only yesterday, President's Day. They write that the uh, Jewish community centers across the nation received bomb threats and the president said absolutely nothing. When President Trump responds to anti-Semitism proactively and in real time and without pleas and pressure, that's when we'll be able to say this president has turned a corner. This is not that moment, the group said. So, uh, yeah, well, where does all this come from? Why, you know, why would all of a sudden there be all of these incidents of anti-Semitism? Where could that possibly come from? Who could have possibly sent that kind of message uh, while they were running for president? Was it the person, uh, you know, who also talked about uh, shipping away millions of undocumented aliens, undocumented immigrants in this country? Because uh, hate hate crimes are on the rise, not just against Jews, but also Muslims, also uh, Mexicans, Hispanics. And I don't know that they're going to get any better, uh, at least based on the documents that were issued today by the White House concerning uh, undocumented immigrants and their plans to enforce the law in that regard. We're going to talk about that next with someone from the American Immigration Council. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Boy, it's one of those days. Um, It's getting disturbing out here. Uh, New York Times reports the Department of Homeland Security today released a set of documents translating President Trump's executive orders on immigration and border security into policy, bringing a major shift in the way the agency enforces the nation's immigration laws. 
Under the Obama administration, undocumented immigrants convicted of serious crimes were the priority for removal. But now, however, immigration agents, customs uh, officers and Border Patrol agents have been directed to remove anyone convicted of any criminal offense. That includes people convicted of fraud in any official matter before a government agency, people who have abused any program related to receipt of public benefits, etc. The policy also calls for an expansion of expedited removals, allowing Border Patrol and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agents, that's ICE, to deport people more immediately. Joining us now to uh, understand the details of what is uh, being released today by the administration is Wendy Feliz. She's the communications director at the American Immigration Council, and uh, she joins us uh, at the last minute here. Wendy Feliz, uh, thank you for joining the broadcast today. Happy to be here, Brad. Thank you. Uh, All right. Well, um, I guess let's start broad here uh, with what exactly is spelled out in these uh, new memos from DHS, specifically, as I understand it. It's uh, the the, the sort of the reinterpretation of our immigration laws uh, that presidents of the United States are allowed to do. That's right, Brad. The president actually does have a lot of discretion when it comes to immigration law. And um, what we have here that was released today, which were the final versions of these memos that were previously leaked, that were that are essentially tied to the executive orders that the president mm-hmm. discussed on January 25th. So these are the memos that sort of put his ideas on interior enforcement and border enforcement into action. And they're sort of our worst fears realized, quite frankly. Um, I think one of the sort of, well, there's several things that are very um, stark and very punitive about this, but I think one of the things you talked about earlier is um, going after people with criminal convictions. This goes even further than that. It actually um, tells ICE to um, prioritize people even suspected or even charged with a crime. So the concept of guilty, you know, innocent until proven guilty goes out the window. So even if you're suspected of committing a crime, you could be subject to deportation. So it's it's broader than than is almost imaginable. And essentially what they've done is do away with all the priority enforcement memos that were written under the Obama administration, mm-hmm. whereby they were trying to narrow down who was deportable. And that's just basic law enforcement 101, the idea that if you go after jaywalkers with the same force that you go after bank robbers, then you're not really doing a good job of stopping people that really pose a real threat to society, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what the Obama administration's enforcement memos were attempting to do, was to really prioritize, knowing that you have a finite number of resources, knowing that Congress only allocates about enough funding to deport 400,000 people a year, who do you who do you go after when there's 11 million people as well as people arriving at the border? So what the Obama administration attempted to do was just be smarter about how they use those law enforcement resources, and what the Trump administration has done with this piece is just take that off the table and say, you know, a jaywalker and a bank robber, so to speak, are at the same level of danger and should be removed. And so it's basically going to put you know, just a lot of people at risk for deportation 
and um, it casts a very wide net. And you also mentioned the piece about um, expedited removal, mm-hmm. which was a way that we remove people without giving them any due process. And it's something that's been very active at the border for many years, but it was limited to generally newcomers who were arriving, and they would go through this expedited process. Now what they're suggesting is that would go to across the country, and they haven't put anything in the federal register yet, so we're not totally sure of what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. But it could be as broad as um, anybody in the interior country who's been here for two years or less could be subject to this very rapid deportation process. So those are just two of the things that we find just very, very upsetting and very troubling and are going to really change the face of enforcement. And and when we when we talk, you talk and we we hear a lot of people talking, we use this phrase, you know, oh, you know, if they're caught for jaywalking, they could be deported in looking at these memos. Is that quite literally the case? I know they don't spell out jaywalking, but is it quite literally the case that anything as uh, quote-unquote criminal as jaywalking could be applied uh, as an excuse for, for detention and deportation? You could be suspected of doing something wrong. You don't even have to be convicted of doing something wrong. They could suspect you were in a gang because you have a tattoo. Um, they can suspect that you are, you know, in this country illegally and ask you for documents. So it just, it makes it, it as I said before, it just casts this incredibly wide net so that basically anybody can be caught up into it. And and so many people that go through proceedings or that get detained don't have lawyers. So, so they're being out-navigated by government lawyers in a system that is, geared to deport them. It's not a system geared towards figuring out, do you have equities? Do you have U.S. citizen kids? Do you have a family member that could sponsor you? They're not looking for that. They're looking for ways to remove people very quickly. And the vast majority of people never have an attorney. So it's it's really important anyone who ever gets detained gets legal representation and gets legal advice because um, they're very efficient at sort of getting people in the deportation process and removing them. And, yeah. and there's these extra ways that they're criminalizing. They're even discussing ways to criminalize parents of children who arrive. So like children that might arrive at the U.S. border who have a parent who's in this country, they're mm-hmm. going to try to find ways to criminalize those parents and say that that's somehow they're responsible for, you know, if they finance the child's trip here or if they can prove there's any kind of um, involvement of criminal gangs and transporting the children, they want to charge the parents with criminal offenses. So it's just generally this trend that's been going on for a long time, but it's finding ways to criminalize the immigrant population. So then you can say, it's not that immigrants are more criminal, they're actually less criminal than the, than the native-born, and studies have borne that out for 20 years. But it's, it's finding ways to criminalize them. So we can say, see, they're dangerous, they're criminals, we should deport them. Now, Wendy, uh, you say that the parents of these kids who show up here, you're saying if the kids show up, they're undocumented, but the parents are, are here legally with a green card or even citizens, no. they could be? Or, no, I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, we don't know the exact like, right. um, uh, features of mm-hmm. it, but it's basically the kids who are coming in as unaccompanied children um, who show up, and, and then what happens is when you come to the border all, all by yourself as a child, you're handed over, not to ICE, you're supposed to be handed over to Health and Human Services. And then there's law in place that says basically Health and Human Services needs to reunite you with a family member. So that person might be an aunt or an uncle or a parent. Well, they're going to look to see if they can prove that somehow that kid showed up here 
through the help of, um, you know, coyotes, basically, is what they're called, and mm-hmm. a lot of people know them as. And if somehow they can prove that the parent has something to do with paying the coyote to bring the child here or to sh- secure their safe passage, they'll give them a criminal conviction. So this is very new yeah. territory that has not ever happened. So that's one piece we're looking at to figure out. And then the other, like, sort of incredibly massive expansion is this idea that everyone, that, that ICE comes into contact that is suspected of either being illegal or have committed a crime would be put in detention. So you're talking about the massive expansion of detention space, which obviously is going to be a boon to private prison industries, but yep. they're going to need to detain you know, far more people than they detain now. There's a 34,000 bed mandate now. We're talking about a much larger number if you have to detain everybody while you figure out what you're going to do with them. Uh, this is our worst fears realized, as you describe, Wendy Feliz. The, uh, it, it also seems, uh, as disturbing as it is, it also, I, am I wrong to say here that this seems like just bad policy I, the, as far as, you know, when you, you mentioned 11 million uh, immigrants in the country that uh, we've allocated uh, funding currently, Congress has allocated funding to, uh, you know, to be able to detain and deport about 400,000. Um, law enforcement needs those priorities to know who to go after. And uh, while I hate to help out law enforcement in this particular case, it, I, I as I hear you describe it, it sounds like this is confusing for law enforcement that they now don't have a direction or priorities of who to go after first, where to focus their own uh, uh, limited resources. Is is that uh, am, am I right on that? I mean, it just seems like bad policy in that regard. It is, and I think you're absolutely right, and I think that's why you've seen so many local um, law enforcement agencies over the past couple years say, we don't want to cooperate with with law enforcement, with uh, immigration enforcement, because basically we're at the local level trying to solve crime. We have limited resources. We need to build community trust so we can solve crime and so that people will report crime, and we don't want to be seen as an immigration enforcement agency. So they wanted immigration enforcement, the feds, to do that and let them do their local law enforcement. This new executive order or, and the new memos that followed are basically saying they want more cooperation with locals. Locals are, local law enforcement doesn't want to cooperate, not because they don't believe in enforcing the law, but they have a separate mandate from mm-hmm. immigration enforcement. And so they're conflating the two. And so what's going to happen when someone wants to show up and report a crime, but they're undocumented? They're not going to do it because then they're afraid that's going to trigger their deportation. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't make anybody safer. It makes us less safe, in fact. And it puts additional mandates on local law enforcement who continually claim that they don't have the resources to even do the work that they've already mandated to do. So it's not smart policy. And, and I think a lot of people don't understand all these law enforcement databases talk to each other. So even if you're a sanctuary city, it's mm-hmm. not to say that your database is not speaking to a federal database when somebody is charged with a crime or someone is arrested. Those databases do um, communicate. What local law enforcement is saying, it's not saying they're not going to cooperate and help them you know, catch bad guys. They're just saying we're not going to take our street cops and start them, you know, on the path of doing deportations. We have other things we have to do locally to keep our community safe. So it's terrible policy. And And I think that's why it's not been the practice, because we've kind of come far along on it. And unfortunately, these new memos really kind of unravel a lot of the thoughtful practices that went into setting priorities, letting local law enforcement do their job, letting federal law enforcement go after bad guys. It's kind of rolling that all back 
back and saying, hey, it's a free-for-all. Go get them. You know, that's, that's going to drive people further underground. It's going to strike fear in, in, in communities. It's going to hurt economies. It's just, it's not good policy. Does anything in these memos, as you read them, um, I know that ICE uh, agency could call on local enforcement to help, but is there anything here that, uh, as you read it in any event, that requires them to do so? Because then we get into this, uh, it's it's a legal issue, and I don't know if if you know you're able to speak to it. But now you've got a federal uh, the federal government versus these so-called sanctuary cities, and you know is there anything that requires these uh, local police at this time as you read these uh, these new documents that would require them to do things they do not wish to do? Well, that's sort of in the so we're going back to the days of 287G agreements. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we had moved away from 287G agreements and this program called Secure Communities, and they had gone to something called Priority Enforcement Memos. And now these are lots of acronyms and lots of program words. But mm-hmm. basically what they want to do is rather than have localities say, this is the way in which we feel that it makes sense for us to work with the federal government to identify serious threats, but this is how we do our law enforcement here, so there's not a one-size-fits-all. So they're rolling that back, and they just want basically everybody to cooperate. And they want to be able to deputize local law enforcement to do deportations. And so are they going to try to cram that down localities' throats? Absolutely. And they've already said they're going to look at ways where if you won't cooperate any certain county or state, they will look for ways to ding you. They will look for ways to hold federal funding back. Now, they haven't actually proposed exactly what that will look like, but I, I suspect that's going to be ripe for many kinds of challenges um, because localities don't want the federal government to tell them, you know, how they do their law enforcement. So I think they're going to attempt, they're going to attempt to force cooperation, but I think that so many states and mayors and others have been very vocal that they're not interested in being told how to do law enforcement um, locally. So I think you're going to see that that's going to be a growing conflict. I mean, all of this is going to be a conflict. You're going to see increasing numbers of churches taking people in. You're going to see disrupted families. You're going to see disrupted communities. You're going to see impacts to uh, local economies. This is going to be very disruptive and potentially disastrous to um, the economy. This just sounds like the absolute worst nightmare. We, we talked uh, last week on the show about this, uh, this woman who has been here for uh, decades. I think she's got kids in Phoenix. She's been deported now um, because her crime included using a, 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 a fake Social Security number so that she could work in this country and essentially pay taxes that she would never get back uh, because she was an undocumented immigrant. Uh, so it's even that sort of crime, right? It, it, giving a, a fake Social Security number that you plant that you use to pay taxes. Uh, that right. you'll never get back. That's enough to throw you out 11. Essentially, it sounds like. 11 million people are now uh, good to go. The Trump administration is ready to throw out anybody for any reason if they are not documented. Yeah, and I think the example of the young DACA recipient in Seattle, Washington, who was somebody who had, you know, been given this form of protection from the government, he had a work permit, and they're basically saying he shouldn't have that anymore because he's suspected of being a gang member because he has a tattoo. Um, And so it's like, it's dust, it it really is starting to feel like even people we said we would protect, like dreamers, Mm -hmm. are not necessarily protected if we arbitrarily decide, do we think you might be in a gang? or we might think you've done something else illegal. I mean, to say that someone 
is that's either suspected of a crime or charged with a crime is then by definition a criminal. That's a scary, arbitrary line that that this administration is saying, you know, sort of it's what they what they want to color it on any given day, and that. That, I think, makes everybody feel in, in the immigrant community, even the documented, I think, feel very targeted, very insecure, and people who know and live and care about immigrants feel that, that wave, too. So it just seems like just incredible fear-mongering. And, um, and we're talking about, uh, in the case of DACA, the DREAMers, the Deferred Action for uh, uh, Childhood Arrivals, the case you mentioned up in Seattle, uh, which we've covered. Uh, there was a guy who uh, two different uh, approvals from the federal government from the uh, DACA work permit. Uh, and yet he w- has still been arrested. He was rounded up when the officials came to arrest his father for some reason or another. They took him as well. And he's now been in uh, been detained for about two weeks. Yeah. How many people are we talking about? How many kids are we talking about? Or at least, I don't mean kids necessarily, but people who came here as children who actually gave their information, their name, their address, their everything else to the federal government under the DACA program, received a proper federal work permit that those people could now also be uh, deported for really no reason at all. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of fear in the DACA community. There's about 740,000 kids who have received that, um, you know, that work permit through that initiative. And I think it is scary because what that Washington case demonstrates is, you know, they're okay with picking up collaterals, you know. So they're going to say, no, we're just going after the bad guys Mm -hmm. who overstayed their visa or who had a final order of um, deportation. We're just going after those guys. But, hey, if their kids are there, we're going to grab them, too. And if they've got DACA, we'll find a way around that say, oh, they're probably in a gang or whatever. I mean, it's so incredibly scary and arbitrary, and they're going to coerce people into signing documents. And so it's just just so important that people don't say anything or agree to anything until they get legal counsel because it's it's a sophisticated and complicated legal system, and they really need to make sure that their rights are protected. And that's, I've got just a minute or two left here, uh, Wendy Feliz uh, of the American Immigration Council. Uh, you, you mentioned several times that uh, people need to contact attorneys. Do you have advice or steps for those who are in uh, in danger from this order, what should they do? Who should they contact? These are not necessarily people who have, you know, lawyers on a, uh, you know, on standby. How how should they move forward at this point? Right. Well, I think what's really important is you can, I mean, you can find, there's lots of sort of uh, pro bono projects that are popping up for people that can't afford services. So there's like Catholic Legal Immigration Services, um, there's United We Dream, um, who actually have a, um, a program put, that they're putting together to provide pro bono legal services. And then people, you know, in each state, there's organizations state by state that um, uh, try to work with migrants and help immigrants find pro bono legal assistance or low-cost legal assistance. Um, there's also the American Immigration Lawyers Association that has 14,000 lawyers who, you know, do lots of work on sliding scales and whatnot. So there's definitely um, legal services available. You have to do a little sort of Googling and research, but there's an increasing number of lawyers who really do want to provide that assistance to people. So I think you're going to continue to see, like, low-cost and no-cost um, 
um, things popping up. I think it's really important people get um, know your rights trainings. You don't have to open the door when ICE is pounding on it, particularly if they don't have a warrant. And if they do arrest you, people need to know that they don't have to say anything. They, they shouldn't, you know, um, give them any more information about their status than, until they talk to a lawyer. They shouldn't admit to anything. You know, it's the basic things you would advise anybody when they were arrested is basically a way to talk to a lawyer. This is... Um, so so disturbing. The uh, part of this, I understand, may rely on Mexico to allow the U.S. to return uh, folks who who came not necessarily not Mex- Mexican citizens, but who came from Central America and so forth. Uh, any reason to believe that Mexico would actually cooperate with this policy? And do you expect uh, Wendy to see just uh, all kinds of legal challenges at this point filed against it, as we saw after the executive order? Uh, uh, concerning immigrants from Muslim countries last week, uh, week or two. Well, on the first piece, I think Mexico has a lot coming at them from the United States and from this president about what he thinks they should and shouldn't do. Um, so I think we kind of have to, I'm not going to speak on behalf of what Mexico may or may not be willing to do. I think we'll have to wait and see. Um, I think there's a lot, you know, renegotiation of NAFTA, paying for the wall, and now, you know, repatriating Mexicans and hanging on to Central Americans. It just, you know, it sounds like we're putting a lot of policy down um, and they need some time to react. So I, I think we'll have to wait to see how they react. Um, on the second piece, which the I've legal, the legal challenges. Oh, if, I mean, if, yeah. If, if, I, is there I, anything I mean, that I can just, stop that? Can the court yeah, stop this? Yeah, I mean, there's things? there's a lot of pieces to these memos, but I would say that you know, and a lot, you know, a lot of time when you file litigation, you have to wait for harm, right? You have to actually say, hey, somebody got hurt by this policy, and and then yeah. that person comes forward as a plaintiff. So I think you have to kind of wait for some of these policies to start to. Um, be implemented, and then you see where um, people are actually harmed, and then I, I think you'll see, um, you know, lawsuits uh, propping up all over the place. I keep saying this really corny joke, but I don't think he's making America great again. I think he's making America litigate again because there's just going to be nonstop litigation on all these issues, and you know, and all kinds of other issues. Um, so hey, yeah, it's, uh, it's, there'll be lots to say about that in the yeah. coming weeks and months. It's a hey, it's a jobs program for attorneys and apparently for uh, ten thousand law enforcement agents that they uh, say they're going to now have to hire to uh, to enforce all of this. What a nightmare, uh, Wendy Feliz. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining us and and for the work that you guys do at the American Immigration Council. Uh, we will be uh, shouting in your direction again soon, I suspect, as this. As this unwinds and gets worse and worse, uh, you can check out uh, the American Immigration Council at AmericanImmigrationCouncil.org and on the Twitters at IMM Council. Wendy, uh, thank you again. And uh, boy, uh, put us on your press re- release and uh, list and uh, good luck as all of this moves forward. Absolutely. Thanks for unpacking it for your audience. You bet. Lots to unpack, unfortunately, and uh, the unpacking will continue. Uh, we got to take a quick break here, and uh, oh, Green News Report, Desi Doyen. That's always uh, cheery. That's coming up next. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media. You know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump. 
must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Yep. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen in the Green News Report coming up. Uh, I keep hearing those words, Des, uh, from Wendy Feliz, our worst fears realized. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of what we're looking at with a lot of things with the uh, Trump administration, um, especially when it comes to the environment. Should we rename the Green News Report? The uh, Our Worst Fears Realized <laughs> Report. Oh, yeah, that's a real show Will that be catchy? Will that uh, get folks to tune in? All right, well, let's, let's get to it. Uh, the worst fears continue <laughs> in our latest Green News Report. At the end of the day, this is about protecting public health. It's the Environmental Protection Agency. What to expect for the EPA following the rushed confirmation of EPA enemy Scott Pruitt. We've learned he was airlifted from the scene just minutes after he caught fire this morning. Three fossil fuel explosions in two weeks. Alaska officials say they can't shut off leaking natural gas pipeline. Plus, the Midwest sets a U.S. wind energy record. All of that breaking wind news and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The new head of the APA is completely in the tank with the oil and the coal. That's how Republicans work with Donald Trump. While you're watching the clowns screw the pony, they're breaking into your car. Yep, this is your Green News Report. Just remember that. Okay, Dizzy Doyen, boy, the U.S. Senate was really in a hurry to confirm Scott Pruitt to head the EPA, weren't they? Yep. The ayes are 52, the nays are 46. The nomination is confirmed. And now it's a rough road ahead for the Environmental Protection Agency and the future health and safety of all American citizens now that the U.S. Senate has confirmed Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt to head the Environmental Protection Agency. For the record, Susan Collins of Maine was the sole Republican to vote against Pruitt. Two Democrats voted with the Republicans, Joe Manchin of the Coal State of West Virginia and Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota. Both are up for re-election in 2018. Senate Republicans rushed the vote despite a federal judge's ruling the day before for Pruitt's office to release emails he exchanged with oil industry executives while serving as Oklahoma's attorney general, emails that Pruitt had withheld for two years. And if they're anything like the ones we saw before, that he simply copied and pasted from oil executives and sent to the White House, 
Uh, there could be a lot of disturbing stuff in those emails. But it won't have any effect on his confirmation. Yes, God forbid we should wait to know who we're actually confirming first. The Washington Post quotes anonymous administration sources saying that within the next few weeks, President Trump will issue executive orders to roll back President Obama's climate and water rules and lift a moratorium on federal coal leasing. Pruitt said his priority will be to withdraw both Obama's landmark clean power plan that limits carbon emissions from the nation's power plants and the waters of the United States rule that would have reduced industrial and farm waste dumping into the nation's drinking water supplies. So who exactly is the Environmental Protection Agency now protecting? Good question. Congressional Republicans have pledged to help Trump and Pruitt slash the EPA's budget. In an interview with PBS NewsHour, Jeremy Simons of the Environmental Defense Fund said such draconian cuts could severely damage the EPA's core mission of protecting public health. I mean, we're talking about gutting core capacities like enforcement, like science, the health um, studies that need to happen to make sure that pollution uh, is controlled. So we're worried about enforcement, like what he did in Oklahoma. We're worried about interfering with science. Frankly, the EPA may be a victim of its own success in cleaning up the air and water. Most Americans don't know just how awful pollution was in the United States before the EPA was established by Republican President Richard Nixon in 1970. Rivers were on fire from industrial waste, raw sewage in drinking water supplies, air pollution as bad as Beijing, China's is today. Meanwhile, over just the last two weeks, three new major fossil fuel explosions in the United States. In Louisiana, one worker was killed in a natural gas pipeline explosion on February 9th that also injured two other workers. It took nearly five days to extinguish that fire with no cause yet determined. In Texas, an explosion from a natural gas pipeline on Wednesday near Corpus Christi shook homes 60 miles away. No injuries were reported. The very next day in Oklahoma, an oil-fueled worker was airlifted to hospital with severe burns after an oil well head exploded and ignited three other wells. The cause for that explosion is also under investigation. Is that Scott Pruitt's Oklahoma? It certainly is. Meanwhile, in Alaska, no explosion yet, but fishing boats have been ordered to stay far away to avoid sparking one from an offshore natural gas pipeline that's been leaking for nearly two weeks in Alaska's Cook Inlet, impacting the feeding grounds of the endangered Cook Inlet balloon. Luga whale. Sea ice is preventing divers from reaching the pipeline to mm. shut it down. Mm. Finally, wind energy set a new record in the United States. On February 12th, wind energy provided the majority of electricity for 14 states served by the regional electric power grid, which runs power lines from North Dakota to Texas. For the first time ever in the United States, wind supplied 52 percent of that grid's electricity reliably without any issues. No wind explosions? Nope. No wind spills? Nope. Well, then let's Let's keep building more oil pipelines. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and I celebrate our eighth anniversary of the Green News Report as we head into a very uncertain ninth year. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your... Green News Report. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. It may be. Thank you, Desi. Some, uh, there, well, see, there's some a good news there. A little touch of there. good news 52%, right there. 52%, uh, a majority in those 14 states coming from wind energy. Yes, it can be done. It's not a, 
boutique energy anymore. Wind, right. solar. So there's some good news. I got some other good news that uh, uh, is just coming across the wire here, but you had uh, a point or two you wanted to catch real quickly concerning Scott Pruitt. Yes. You know, remember his big goal is to get rid of the clean power plan. That's mm-hmm. that crucial tool that we're supposed to be using to meet our commitments under the UN Paris Agreement to cut our emissions. Crucial, said Barack Obama. Exactly. But yeah. And pretty much anybody else who understands the uh, electric system and uh, global climate emissions and all that. But uh, so for Pruitt to withdraw the clean power plan, the Washington Post in that story is reporting that Trump is going to frame that order to rewrite the clean power plan carbon rules for existing power plants as a means of reducing U.S. dependence on other countries for energy. That's the claim that they're going to go for. Oh, we won't have to import energy from other countries quite as much. But that's a head fake because in reality, the U.S. power sector does not really import that much fuel for electricity generation. Not so, anymore. Not anymore. And actually, <clears throat> oil was never really used for electricity right, generation. Right. It was all homegrown coal and now homegrown natural gas. Yeah. So when they say, oh, this is we're going to have to do this because we don't want to import energy. They're not really telling you the truth. So that's a purposely. But misleading. do they have to tell us the truth? Do they have to give a reason as far as you know to just do away with the clean power plant? I think that they have to give a reason for the media so that they don't get attacked so much. But no, they could do whatever they want. Legally, they don't have to go to court. Right. It will take some time and it will. But they they are definitely gunning for the clean power plan. And just one last thing, the Autobond Society, you know, the the bird people. Yeah, they're usually not very political at all. They reacted to Pruitt's confirmation by saying, quote, he's a menace to himself and everything else in the air. Yes, birds, too. Wow. That's the Audubon Society? That was the Audubon Society. Mm, Yeah. Not pulling any punches on that one. Well, and... We will see how much of a menace he is. I don't I don't think we can even uh, understand yet how bad this could get. But with that bad news, let me give you a little bit of good news that uh, came in just now across the wire. So I haven't gotten to read much more of this. I'll just read you the first uh, sentence of this report. Uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit has ruled that the Second Amendment does not protect assault weapons. An extraordinary decision, keenly attuned to the brutal havoc these firearms can wreak, according to Mark Joseph Stern over at uh, over at Slate, uh, issued by the court sitting on bank. That means the the entire court, essentially. Uh, Tuesday's uh, decision reversed a previous ruling in which a smaller a three panel uh, a panel of judges had struck down Maryland's ban on assault weapons and detachable large-capacity magazines. Today's ruling is a remarkable victory for gun safety advocates and a serious setback for gun proponents who believe the Second Amendment exempts weapons of war from regulation. I suspect we may have more on that uh, uh, tomorrow (laughs) and in the future, but uh, there's some good news to uh, close out the day. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Wendy Feliz of the American Immigration Council, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com or your favorite podcast site like iTunes, where we hope you'll uh, stop by and, and leave us a good review, make it a little easier for everyone else in the world to find us as well. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com, and you can and should find, follow, and share us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.